This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved, through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to study your word, to learn more precisely how you would have us to think, and what we should do in order to continue our spiritual advance to grow, in order to, that we might reach spiritual maturity. Father, at this time of the year, it is a time that, not unlike any other year, but a time when our attention is specifically drawn to the birth of our Savior. And Father, may we continuously be reminded that it is at this time that, that you have given to us freely, without merit on our part, not because we deserve it, but solely because of your love for us. And that the real message at this time and the purpose for this time of celebration is to be reminded that we have been given a Savior, a Savior who has completely paid the penalty for all of our sin, so that there is nothing left for us to do. A Savior who has done it all, a Savior who has paid the price, and a Savior who now is seated at your right hand and who is ever making intercession for us. Father, we continue to pray for our nation that you would keep us safe, watch over us, protect us from our enemies. Give our leaders, our, those who are in charge of security, the wisdom, the skills, the insight, the intuitiveness to be able to pick up on the things that are being done in order to attack us. Father, we pray that you would watch over us, and especially those who are in this congregation who are going to be traveling, those who are headed for the Middle East, that you would keep them safe and that you would give stability and comfort to their loved ones who are left here behind. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Second John. Second John, and we are down in verse 4. Second John, the, this is the second of John's epistles written to a church, a church that... Uh, existed probably in one of the seven areas where the seven letters to the seven churches are mentioned in the first part of Revelation. 
We're not sure which church this is. Could be Laodicea, could be Colossae, could be Hierapolis. The scriptures are not clear and tradition is silent. John addresses the epistle as the elder, refers to himself as the elder, which emphasizes his pastoral relationship with this congregation. Congregation he refers to through the metaphor of the elect lady and the members of the congregation as her children. We have studied so far in the first uh, three verses that John expresses the same basic themes that we have seen already in 1 John in which our Lord taught in the upper room discourse in John 13 through 17. The emphasis on the truth, the revelation of God, there Jesus uh, had emphasized in the Gospel of John, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. But truth does not exist apart from a relationship. And in fact, as we studied last time, truth in the Scriptures is ultimately personal. It is, resides in the person of God, in his character. And Jesus Christ himself said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Truth is not some abstract system of knowledge, but truth is a person. It is God, the triune God, and especially in view here is his son, Jesus Christ. We're told that the truth abiding in us is the key to living the spiritual life. And that becomes the emphasis in the next three verses, verses 4 through 6. Verse 4 we read, John saying, I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. He begins by expressing his joy, his enthusiasm, his excitement over the spiritual advance of the members of this congregation. There is nothing that motivates, nothing that challenges, nothing encourages a pastor or a teacher more than a responsive congregation, and a congregation that's responsive to the truth. It's always a, a wonderful excitement for me to be in front of a group of people that are enthusiastic about learning, that are coming up with all kinds of questions about the Bible, and who want to know more. I think that's one of the things that I enjoy so much when I go out to California each year and work with the pastors at, at WHWs because they're, they're just like a, a bunch of sponges. They, they're so hungry. They want to know more. And nothing motivates you and gets you more excited than people who want to know the Bible. And people who don't want to know the Bible don't care about the truth uh, are people that I just really don't want to spend a lot of time with or waste a lot of time with because they're distracted. They haven't decided what's important yet. And I have said for years, I would rather have a church of 20 people who really want to know the truth than a church of 200 or 2,000 where you only have 20 people who want to know the truth. Because those other people are a distraction, they're a problem, and they're going to be troublemakers eventually. This is one reason why, although I don't have a problem with having choirs, I don't have a problem with, with the music ministry, but what I find in so many large churches is that they use these secondary ministries, youth ministries. Uh, they have dinners on Friday nights. They have choirs. They have special presentations as a tool for attracting people to the church. Come to our church and be in the choir. Come to our church and be involved in sports. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things. 
But sooner or later what you discover is you may have built a church of 500 or 1,000 or 2,000, but most of the people are there to sing in the choir. Most of the people are there to play in the orchestra. Most of the people are there to work with the young people. Most of the people are there to, to be involved in the, the uh, uh, intramural sports program. But they're not there to learn the Word of God. Oh, that's okay, but, but I'm really here to sing. And what's going, what always happens eventually in those churches is some issue comes up. Some situation arises. That, and, and Satan usually brings these things in. Some situation arises that focuses on a doctrinal issue. What happens is you end up with 40 or 50 percent of the people not only don't care about the doctrinal issue, but they, because doctrine hasn't been a priority, they're not thinking biblically, and they want one thing, and the folks who are there who have studied the Bible have a biblical have doctrine in the soul, and they know what the truth is, and you have a major church fight. And usually those churches split. And it is always a problem because what you end up with, if you're a pastor of a church like that, there's always a certain segment of the congregation, especially if you are trying to teach the Word. There's a certain segment of the population that's always creating friction because they really don't want the, that's, they don't want the truth because that's not why they're there. And the truth is bothersome to them. It, 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 it's convicting to them. And they would rather be like every other church. And so I almost think it's better, uh, not that we've made any decision not to have a choir or music program. It's just not something we have the ability to provide. Uh, but I almost think it's a good thing because when you look at our congregation, you're here for one reason. You're here because you want to know the truth. Anybody who comes to visit, it becomes clear very quickly that if, if they want to be involved with this congregation, then, then it's all about learning the Word. And if you want something else out of a church, well, you know this just isn't the place for you. So we don't, get, we don't pick up a lot of dross here at, this, at Preston City Bible Church. We have people who very quickly the visitors realize that we're about one thing, and that's the Word, and that's what we should be known for. I think it's important that that, um, that you emphasize your strength, and the strength in any church should be the teaching of the Word of God and doctrine, and we should be known for that. That If you want to know the Word, Preston City Bible Church is where you want to go. This is something we're trying to instill in the prep school, is a high quality of biblical education for the children so that they know the Bible, not just doctrine, but they know the Bible. So that as they go out, they interact with other kids. They, they uh, over at some friend's parents' house, and and they articulate something from the Bible. Then somebody else is going to say, "Man, those kids know the Bible." And that's what we should be known for, not just and not just an academic knowledge, but that that impacts the way we live. It is a knowledge of the word. This is what should excite us, should excite our prep school teachers. And this is what excites me. This is what excited me when I first came up here, can you believe it, five years ago. Uh, this Christmas, uh, we came up here to, um, for a little conference, and uh, you, the church was looking for a pastor at that time. And it's just amazing how fast those five years have, have gone by. And yet, when you stop and think about all the things that have happened,
happened in the last five years, um, well, it just seems like maybe it dragged a few times for some people. I know that some folks have had difficult times with health problems and other problems in life, and yet there's been a tremendous number, a tre- tremendous amount of growth and uh, encouragement in the Word. And that was the one thing that really hit me when I returned to Houston was that somebody asked me what I thought, and I said, you know, I'm not sure that's where the Lord wants me, but that's a great church for somebody because those people want to know the Word. That's all they want to do is know the Word and uh, how rare that is in today's world. So that's that's the kind of excitement that, that John has here in verse 4. He is excited. He is enthused. He uses the Greek verb kairo, an aorist passive here. He says, I rejoiced. I was very glad. I was excited to find. And here he said, uses the uh, Greek verb, uh, the perfect uh, active indicative of heresko, to find, to discover. I was excited to discover some of your children walking in the truth, not just learning the truth, but walking in the truth. Walking has to do with their Christian lifestyle. They are applying the doctrine that they have learned. He has said that he loves them in truth, and all those who know, who have known the truth love them, and the truth should abide in them, and the result of truth abiding in the believer is application, that these uh, members of the congregation are walking by means of truth. So they are have been learning the Word, and they have been picking up momentum in their spiritual life. They are walking not just in. It's not a sphere concept. It is by means of truth. They are living their life by means of truth. It is a Greek preposition, in, plus the dative of aletheia. They are walking. They're living their life by means of doctrine, not just a matter of accumulating a lot of notes in a, do- in a doctrinal notebook, but they're taking these concepts, they're going home, they're thinking about them, reflecting on what they have learned in Bible class, and it is changing the way they think about life, and so they are living their life by means of truth. And then he says, just as we receive commandment to do from the Father, we are to grow by means of grace and knowledge. It is important to learn the Word, to know the Word, to be exchanging the human viewpoint in our soul for the divine viewpoint of the Word. That is the mandate for spiritual life under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We are to exchange what we have learned or what we think we know for the truth. Jesus said that you will know the truth, that is the Word of God, and the truth will set you free. Truth or doctrine is something that is extremely practical. It's not just abstract theology. I think this is a problem with the way some people want to teach teach doctrine. They, they, they never see, show how the truths of Scripture make a difference in the way you live. Some people may think that the doctrine of the Trinity is an abstract concept. Well, so what? That God exists three in one. But yet it is one of the most practical of all doctrines. If you understand the concept of the Trinity as it should be understood, it becomes the foundation 
for almost everything in life. Just one example, in the Trinity you have three persons. They are one in essence, but three distinct persons or personalities, and they relate to one another. They are equal in essence, but yet there is a hierarchy of role and responsibility. Now think about that. That in every area of life, you are involved in role responsibility. You are involved in an authority relationship. So God and his very being in the Trinity has authority orientation, even though there is genuine equality. That equality and subordination are not opposite ideas, and yet we live in a world that teaches that any kind of subordination is some sign of inequality. And so the masses are to rise up in rebellion against their masters. I mean, all of that is is an attack, a very subtle attack, on the very concept of the Trinity. The breakdown of role relationships in marriage, the breakdown of role relationships in the fa- in the family are all subtle attacks on the veracity of the Trinity. If you understand and the role relationships in the Trinity, it ought to transform your marriage relationship. Because in a marriage you have two people who are equal in their person, but yet there are distinct roles and responsibilities. One's the leader and one is to follow the leader. One is the subordinate one. But that doesn't mean the wife is less equal or less of a person or less spiritually or anything like that. And yet human viewpoint says, oh, yes, but that's true. So you see, every doctrine is important and has practical emphasis and comes down to the practical application of walking or living the Christian life. So understanding the truth sets us free, free from human viewpoint, free from the influence of sin. Now in verse 5, John says, And now I ask you, lady, he makes a request, that is by the nature of the statement, uh, a soft imperative. He is making a request, the very verb itself, to make a request, eratao, indicates an imper- uh, uh, the idea of a request, which is similar to the emphasis of an imperative, even though it's, in an, it's an aorist active indicative verb. He says, and now, starting the verse off, and now introduces a transition. He's going to uh, introduce the main uh, theme of this epistle. He says, now I ask you, now I make a request of you. This is an, a, it's an aorist tense, which is a past tense form, but it is an epistolary aorist in that it is something written in an epistle. When, when John writes this, it's at the present time. He could say, I am writing this to you. But it's going to be several months before his readers read it, and by then his writing it is three months in the past. So he writes it from their perspective. He says, I have asked you. And it's referring to the time of which he is writing. It's a typical idiom in letters where the writer is speaking from the viewpoint of the reader rather than his own perspective. He says, now I ask you, lady, that is, the church. I am asking you, the church, not as writing to you a new commandment. Now I want to stop on this particular verb. Not as writing, graphone. It is a present active participle. Present tense indicates continuous action. Not while writing to you. And the verb writing and the fact that it is a, uh, 
and is related to John's activity as a human being, introduces us to the whole doctrine of inspiration, the inspiration of Scripture. John is a human being who is writing the Scriptures. Now, there are many people, many people who come along and they say, well, you've got a fallen creature, you've got a human being coming along, and he is writing Scripture. So doesn't that mean that Scripture is going to have error? It's written by a fallible human being. Therefore, when you introduce uh, something fallible into the equation, the result is going to have flaws in it. It's going to have errors. So how can you say that the Bible is the Word of God? See, throughout church history, throughout the history of Christianity and in the Old Testament, in uh, the history of Israel, the Scriptures were viewed as the objective revelation from God to man. It has only been in recent years, in the last two centuries, as a result of liberal theology, that the term Word of God has been uh, slightly modified, so that instead of being a word from God, it is a word about God. And it is no longer God's objective revelation of himself to man, but it is man's record of his encounters with God. And so it is a human message rather than a divine message. And as a human message, then, it would be subject to error. And it is simply different people recording their various impressions and experiences with God. And that is the view of most liberal churches and most neo-Orthodox churches today. They do not believe the Bible is the infallible, inerrant, Word of God. Now, I want to take some time to address this because there's a crucial parallel between the word, the written Word of God, which is without error, and the incarnate Word of God, who is sinless. And the same dynamics are in place because the author of the written Word of God is God the Holy Spirit writing through human means. And that even though he uses human means, he guarantees that the product is free from error. He is in control of the process. It's not their process. And the same thing is true about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God the Holy Spirit oversaw that process. He overshadowed Mary, made it made Mary conceive and overshadowed the process so that the result of the that pregnancy was completely without error, without Adam's original sin, without a sin nature, so that Jesus Christ is completely free from all sin. It is the same same process and there is an important parallel there. So this morning we're going to look at the parallel between the Holy Spirit and written revelation and the Holy Spirit and the revelation of Jesus Christ, appropriate for Christmas. First of all, the importance of the subject. Why is this important? This is important because if the Bible is a word about God rather than a word from God, then it would contain errors and we cannot rely upon it exclusively. So it would mean that the ultimate authority would no longer be what the Bible says. The ultimate authority is what man says. But if the Bible is the word from God, 
then it contains eternal, absolute truth, and it is our job under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, to discern what God has said. We must remember that God has revealed himself in order to be understood. He has not revealed himself for it to be some some kind of hidden cryptic message that somehow we have to get in the right frame of mind or we have to understand the right code in order to break it and figure out what the Bible says. God is communicating in order to be understood, and he has given us in the church age the Holy Spirit, who is called the Spirit of Truth, because that is his role to illuminate our minds and to help us understand what the Scripture says. So this is a crucial subject and a crucial one for today because it boils down to the basic issue of authority. And today people want to make the authority man, that the authority is not God, and so they constantly want to challenge the veracity of the Bible. And yet, despite all the discoveries of uh, archaeology, despite all the scientific discoveries, Nothing has yet been discovered that contradicts anything stated in the Bible. Now, we may not have specific mention in any ancient record of Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. We may not have uh, specific mention of David, although David's name was recently discovered on a uh, document referring to the house of David that related to the time of the divided monarchy in Israel, and that was the first confirmation archaeologically of David's name in history, and I think that's a a crucial discovery. But just because these names aren't mentioned doesn't mean that these events did not occur. Remember, what God is doing with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is he's dealing with a very small group of Bedouins. They're not kings. They're not princes. There's nothing necessary about their life that would be noted in the great halls of power in Egypt or Nineveh or Babylon. Yet, everything that the Bible says about what life was like for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Genesis chapter chapters 12 through 50 can be evaluated on what we have discovered historically from that time period. And everything that we have learned about that time period from archaeology fits perfectly with the Uh, portrait of life at that time is seen in the Scriptures. So there's nothing that's ever been discovered to contradict contradict the Scriptures. And every now and then you find uh, in archaeology some discovery that really uh, upsets the liberals. One of the most noted was that in the 19th century, uh, there was no knowledge of a Hittite empire, no historical references. The Greeks never mentioned the Hittites. There was never no mention of the Hittite empire except in the Bible. And so liberals said, see, the Bible just makes up these things. This is just fables and doesn't have to do with anything that really happened. And then in 1927, an archaeologist was was uh, digging in Turkey near the uh, area of Bagazkoy and discovered the remnants of the Hittite empire. So all the liberals had egg on their face. But that doesn't change or cause them to go back and reexamine their liberal presuppositions. Uh, The Bible has always been authenticated, not proved, authenticated through historical and archaeological evidence. The Bible, as the Word of God, contains its own authority. It is self-authenticating. When God speaks, man knows it. 
He may question it. He may suppress it in unrighteousness. Romans 1.18, as we saw this morning. But nevertheless, in his soul, he reverberates to the voice of God and knows that God has spoken. So this is an extremely important subject. Point number two, we need to understand the key terms when talking about inspiration. The first key term is revelation. Revelation. What is revelation? The term means to disclose or uncover that which was previously unknown. It means to disclose or uncover that which was previously unknown. And in the Scriptures, it is God the Holy Spirit who discloses the hidden thoughts of God to man through the message of the Scripture. He discloses to man the basic problem of man, which is sin, and God's perfect solution, which is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, eternal deity, who was made flesh and became true humanity that he might go to the cross and die for us. Jesus Christ is the highest and greatest disclosure of God to man. This is seen in John 1, 14 through 18. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is a higher rank than I, for he existed before me, the eternality of Christ. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And in verse 18, John says, No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, that is Jesus Christ, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Jesus Christ is the highest and most profound revelation of God in history. The second term that we look at is the term inspiration. Inspiration. Now, in English, we have a, the, the word is often used in a much lower standard than the way Scripture uses it. And that makes it somewhat confusing. We may see an artist look at a, a beautiful a beautiful scene and, and inspired and they create a tremendous uh, work of art. Or, or you may have someone who's a musician, someone of genius like Mozart who hears music in their head and, and, and they write that and they compose it and they write a, a concerto or a symphony or, or an opera and, and we think of that as being inspired. But that is not what the scripture means by this. The word inspiration comes from the Greek word Theopneustos, and it is found in 2 Timothy 3.16, where the Scripture says, All Scripture is inspired by God, and the Greek word is Theopneustos. It's a compound word from Theos, meaning God, and Neustos, meaning breath. God breathes, not man. God breathes out the information into the soul of the writers, and then the writers exhale that information into Scripture. That's the mechanics, as we'll see. And all Scripture, the text says, all Scripture, not most, not some, not the New Testament, not just the red letters in your Bible, but all Scripture is breathed out by God. So we define inspiration by saying that that this means that God, the Holy Spirit, so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture. 
that without waving or overpowering their human intelligence, vocabulary, individuality, or literary style, their personality or personal feelings or any other human factor, his complete and coherent message to mankind was recorded with perfect accuracy in the original languages of Scripture, the very words bearing the authority of divine authorship. Now, I said that quickly, but I'll slow down when I go through a little explanation. The first phrase, God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture. God the Holy Spirit performs the action. It's supernatural. We can't explain it through natural means. He does it in a unique way. God overpowers. Dr. Ryrie used to say, God the Holy Spirit supernaturally superintends. He, he overrides. He, he is in control of the process, but he does it in such a way that he doesn't control or change the individual. So that when Paul writes, you get a sense of who Paul is. When John writes, you get a sense of who John is. When Peter writes, you get a sense of who Peter is. Each one has a different vocabulary. Each one has a different style. John writes in a very simple form of Greek, and he uses a simple vocabulary, though his concepts are profound, and he has an intricate style that is... uh, that you must master or you won't be able to interpret him correctly. Peter, I mean, Paul, on the other hand, uses a much wider vocabulary. He he makes up or coins his own words at times from making compounds of other Greek words. He writes in long, long, convoluted, complex sentences where he just sort of piles one subordinate clause on top of another subordinate clause until you feel like you're just lost in the maze of what he has said, and and if you don't go back and, as a student, diagram out what he said, often you miss the point that that, that uh, Paul is trying to make. So the Holy Spirit governs the process, but he doesn't destroy their personality. They write according to their own background, their own intelligence. They use their own vocabulary. They express their own personal feelings, but yet... God uses the human writer, and he prevents them from inserting any error so that God's complete message, his coherent message, is recorded with perfect accuracy, but only in the original manuscripts. The King James isn't without error. I know that may shock someone, but the King James wasn't Paul's Bible. King James English was spoken in England, in the, in the 17th century, not in uh, Galilee in the 1st century. It is the originals that were written, but copies were made. Now, if, if I were to dictate from you, to you a chapter of Scripture, and you all were, we were to go back to elementary school and take a dictation exercise, and you got your notebooks out, and I read to you from the Scripture, and you wrote down what I dictated, some of you would miss a word here or there. But if we took all of the copies that you had and somehow we lost the original, we could reconstruct from your copies what the original said. But if you don't have an original that's without error, the original has error, then it doesn't matter what the copies have. They've just, they're just compounding error. So it is important for the original to be without error, and we call that inerrancy. 
that the original writings were without error and the very words bearing the authority of divine authorship. When God speaks, you know God is speaking. The words themselves carry divine authority. Now, a third term that is used, that covers inspiration, that it is God, the Holy Spirit, who breathes into the writers of Scripture, who then exhale that into their writings. We then have the concept of plenary verbal inspiration. And I'll write this up on the overhead here. Plenary is P-L-E-N-A-R-Y. And it means full. And it The import of that is that the whole of Scripture, the whole of Scripture is inspired. Every part of it, even the genealogies, are inspired by God. Every aspect, plenary means the entirety of Scripture, is equally and fully revealed and inspired by God. Verbal refers to the principle that Every word, it is the words that are inspired. And this would go down to the very grammar that it is important to distinguish between a present tense and an aorist tense, between an imperative mood and an indicative mood, that all of this is significant, that it goes down to the very, very grammatical details. Every single word is equally Inspired, not just the so-called spiritual words like regeneration, redemption, uh, justification, but the conjunctions, the participles, the particles. The every single word is equally uh, inspired and equally inerrant. Now, how did this take place? So that gets us a terminology: verbal plenary inspiration. Inspiration, uh, infallibility means that there is no error; that it is unbroken. Used to be, you could just say that I believe the Bible is the Word of God, and that was fine. Then you had to say, no, I believe the Bible is the infallible Word of God. Then you had to say, no, I believe the Bible is the verbal and plenary inspired and infallible Word of God. Then you had to say the Bible is the verbal, plenary, infallible, and inerrant Word of God. See, every generation, some scholars, some of these guys should have been lawyers or probably were lawyers, they take a good word and they find some little loophole and start creating error in the Bible. And inerrancy came up in the 70s, and there was a tremendous debate at that time. So all of that is to say that the Bible is the unbreakable, infallible, inerrant Word of God. God spoke, and man recorded it. In some cases, there was dictation. It's not a dictation theory, although at times, like with the Ten Commandments, there was dictation. But it is not a dictation. Many different means of of, uh, revelation, dreams, visions, Memory, the disciples wrote, uh, the apostles who wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote from memory, and that memory was, was uh, guaranteed by God the Holy Spirit. So what are the mechanics? How did this take place? Well, we go back to our passage here in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture, not some Scripture, but all Scripture. As a matter of fact, we see evidence of this in 1 Timothy 5.18. For the Scripture says... Uh, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, 
and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Paul is writing 1 Timothy 5.18, and in this he quotes from Deuteronomy 25.4, and he calls that scripture. And then the second part of the verse, the laborer is worthy of his wages, is a quote from Luke 10.7. So by the time Paul is at the end of, near the end of his ministry in 1 Timothy, Luke has already been written, and Paul is quoting it as Scripture, as the same authority as Old Testament Scripture in Deuteronomy, the revelation given to Moses. So we see that all Scripture, not just some Scripture, but all Scripture is breathed out by God. And Peter himself makes a comment about Paul. He says it's also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. So Peter clearly recognizes that what Paul has written is Scripture on the same level of authority as the Old Testament revelation. Now, what is the role of the Holy Spirit? Point number four. What's the role of the Holy Spirit? This is seen in Second Peter 1, 20 and 21. And here we see that there's on one side the role of the Holy Spirit, and on the other side, human involvement. Second Peter 1, 20 states, for, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Now, what that means is that a prophecy, a message from God to the prophet, was not a matter of that prophet's interpretation. He doesn't originate it. It didn't come from him. It came from God. That's what is explained in verse 21. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. A legitimate prophecy in the Old Testament, none of the Old Testament prophecies, were generated by human will. They didn't have their source in Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. They are the result of God speaking through them. But they were men moved by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke from God. And the word there for moved is the present passive participle. A passive voice means that someone else does the action, and they receive the action. So they receive the action of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is also used in Acts 27, 15, and 17 of a ship that is blown by the wind. And so when the wind blew the sails on the ship, it took the ship wherever it went, and the sailors had no control. That was one of the problems in the old days. They had a rudder to some degree, but if they're out there on the ocean and they've got, they want to go north and they've got a north wind, well, they've got to go where the wind blows them. And so the Holy Spirit is moving them. They're under the direction of God, the Holy Spirit, so that he is guaranteeing that the revelation he gives is being recorded uh, without error. The Holy Spirit is the agent of revelation. And when sinful, fallible men wrote, because it didn't, the message did not proceed from them or originate with them, God controlled the process, making it free from error. Remember, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth in John 16:13. If any error slipped in, then he could no longer be called the Spirit of Truth. Now, this is the same kind of thing that we see happening in the birth of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit overshadowed 
the fallible writers of Scripture to guarantee that their product would be infallible and inerrant. In the same way, he overshadowed the sinner Mary. Mary was born in sin. If you don't know this, the doctrine of Immaculate Conception does not refer to Jesus. The doctrine of Immaculate Conception refers to Mary. But that is a false doctrine. The Bible does not say that. The Bible teaches that Mary, just like any other human, was born with a sin nature. Adam's original sin was imputed to her, and that there was nothing special about her other than her own devotion to God. And God chose her out of his grace, not because she was more pious than anybody else. God had special or other qualifications as well. And that was that she was in the royal line of David and therefore qualified biologically to be the mother of the Savior from the tribe of Judah who would be born in Bethlehem. So we see this process described in the Scriptures. I want to direct your attention to Luke chapter 1. Let's look at the process. Luke chapter 1. We'll pick up in verse 26. There's already been the announcement to Zechariah, the birth of John the Baptist. And so he has gone home and his um, wife, Elizabeth, who is beyond the age of childbearing, is miraculously uh, pregnant. And we read now in the sixth month, that is in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin. That means she has not had sex. She is in a betrothal period. There's a formal period of betrothal in Judaism so that after the marriage contract was set, sometimes it would be a year, sometimes longer between the time of the, the contract was set and the marriage was formalized, and it was not until that point that the marriage was consummated. So in between this time, it is the husband's responsibility to be constructing a home for the bride. But during this time, if anything is discovered about the bride that is uh, unclean, that if she has had, if she has an affair, if she has sex during that time, then there can be a divorce. So she is specifically mentioned as a virgin in fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 9. A virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. So he is going to be a descendant of Mary, who is from the house of David, biologically giving him the right to, to rule as the greater son of David, but not Joseph, because Joseph is a descendant of Jeconiah, and that brings in the Keniah curse. Jeconiah was an evil king in the house of Judah, and God punished him by saying that there would be no descendant of his to ever sit on the throne of, of Israel. So he is not biologically related to Joseph, but because of his, his adoption by Joseph and his actual uh, biological relationship to Mary, he has full rights to the throne of David. Having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you, Blessed are you among women. She is chosen not because of who and what she is, but because of God's grace. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and considered what manner of greeting uh, this might be. And the angel said to her, 
Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor, you have found grace with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, which means Savior. He will be great, verse 32, and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob uh, forever. Four things he says. He will be great, son of the highest, have the throne of David, reign over the house of Jacob forever. Mary knows what that means. She understands all the messianic implications. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be? How is this process going to occur? I've never known a man. I haven't had sex. And the angel answered and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. So we see how God the Holy Spirit is able to come upon a fallible, fallen, sinful creature and still guarantee that the result is without error, without sin. And the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. He is full deity. That's the import of the term Son of God is that he is fully divine. Son does not indicate generation. It indicates identity. It's a metaphor, an adjectival metaphor indicating full deity. And then in verse 36, Behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who is called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now let's turn over to Matthew chapter 1 and pick up the next stage of the story. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew gives a much shorter account. Matthew says, now the birth of Jesus was as follows. So in Luke, we get the story of the conception and how she became pregnant by God the Holy Spirit conceiving the new life in her womb. Then Matthew gives us his birth. Now, the birth of Jesus was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, that is, before they had intimate relations, she was found with a child from the source of the Holy Spirit. Once again, the emphasis on God, the Holy Spirit, involved in the process. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. He could divorce during the betrothal period, and that's what he was going to do, but he wanted to do it secretly. But God had another plan. Verse 20, while he thought about these things, he's not hasty. He's thinking about it. He's considering it. He's deliberating. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the source of the Holy Spirit. So once again, we have the emphasis that this is the Holy Spirit, that Jesus does not have a human father. That is why he is born sinless. There is no transmission of Adam's original sin. There, I mean, there's no transmission of a genetically formed sin nature, so there's no home for the imputation of Adam's original sin. And she will bring forth a son, verse 21, and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. It's from the Hebrew word Yasha, meaning to save. Yeshua means Savior. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall, shall be with child, Isaiah 7:14. The virgin shall be with child and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. 
And then we'll turn to pick up the final episode back to Luke chapter 2, which records the situation around the circumstances surrounding his birth. Came to pass in those days, Mary is now pregnant, and there's a decree that comes forth from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So they've got to register for this tax. The census first took place while Quirinius was governing in Syria. Notice how Luke anchors them this in history. We know where the events are going to take place and when they took place. He makes sure that he gives that this is not some myth. It's not uh, in a galaxy long time ago, far, far away. This isn't once upon a time in a great and glorious kingdom. This is at a specific time in Israel when uh, Caesar Augustus is the emperor of the Roman Empire and Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, every one to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, both Mary and David are, I mean, Mary and Joseph are descendants of David, so they have to go to their uh, tribal hometown, their ancestral village, in order to be registered for the, for the tax. So it was, verse 6, that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths. These were cloths that were also used to wrap the dead. It is foreshadowing. Even in in the manger, he is pictured and clothed with the cloths of death. Laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, I don't know what images you have in your mind about an inn. But whatever they are, they're probably wrong. See, this is the age of caravans, and they would not go to an inn. If you've ever traveled uh, along the highways of this country, you know there are places, I remember out west many times, traveling, you have roadside parks, especially when you get in New Mexico and west Texas or or, uh, uh, Colorado. Many times it would be late at night, and I would decide just to stop, and you pull off at a roadside park, and there's nothing there but a picnic table and just a, and just a metal cover over the picnic table. And I would throw out a sleeping bag on top of the picnic table and go to sleep. Get up at 6 in the morning, keep going. Well, that's about what these inns were like. Usually in the hillside there would be caves, not deep caves, but just kind of rounded out areas. And this is where they would often shelter the animals. And out in a kind of a semicircle out from the hillside would be just some lean-tos and covered areas where the uh, caravanners would stop and they would make their, their camp for the night. And then they would put the animals back up in the caves and to shelter them from the, from the weather. Well, they got there so late, there weren't any tables available. They didn't have any shelters available. So they had to sleep in the caves with the animals. That's what an inn was at that time. Don't picture some sort of medieval or 19th century hotel. Um, this is just a campsite. And they have to, and rather than sleeping in a covered lean-to, they have to go sleep with the animals back in the cave. So that's where the manger is. It's just a place where they, the, the, the straw was kept, a feeding trough for the animals. This is where our Savior was born. He is born the Son of God. He is born impeccable. He has 
no sin nature. He has no inherited sin nature. He has no imputation of Adam's original sin. He is guaranteed perfect because he is born by the Holy Spirit. Just as the Holy Spirit was able to overshadow fallen human flesh and still produce a Savior who is without sin, so God the Holy Spirit is able to overshadow human authors and guarantee that their product is free from human error and free from flaws. So we have an inerrant and infallible word. This is what John refers to in First John, or Second John 4 when he says, I am writing this to you. He is he knows he's writing scripture. He knows that God the Holy Spirit is writing through him. And he is writing that now not everything that the authors of scripture wrote was inerrant. We know of at least two other epistles that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. What we have is really second and fourth Corinthians. The first letter got lost and this and the third letter got lost because they weren't written under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote letters to all kinds of people back then. They didn't have telephones and they didn't have email. But what he wrote to other people that's not in the Scripture was not infallible, was not inerrant, and was not Scripture. Only what was preserved is Scripture. So just because you were an apostle, just because you were uh, a writer of Scripture does not mean that everything you said, everything you wrote, everything you did was free from error. Only those specific things that were written under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. So we are confident that we have a revelation, an inscripturated revelation that is without error, and that we have a Savior who was without error. And therefore, because he was sinless, he was qualified to go to the cross and there to die as our substitute. That's what Christmas is all about. It is a time of rejoicing because we have been given an infallible, an impeccable Savior, a un- the unique one of the entire universe, undiminished deity and true humanity united in one person, coming to the earth for one purpose, and that is to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded again of the wonderful plan of salvation that you have. From eternity past, you loved us so much that you sent your Son to die on the cross as a substitute for us. And that began in a manger, in an out-of-the-way place, in a hillside cave in Bethlehem. And there the God of the universe took on flesh that he might reveal himself to us, live amongst us, and go to the cross and take upon himself all of our sins and all of our punishment. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ paid the price. It's a gift. It's a free gift. It's not dependent on anything you do. It's not dependent on anything that any ritual, any association with any church can provide. Only God can save. He does so freely because Jesus Christ paid the penalty. It's paid in full. All you have to decide is whether or not you will accept that. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we have studied today that you would make those things clear to us and that especially this next week as we celebrate Christmas, 
that this would be a time when we can rejoice and glorify you for the birth of our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.